This week's episode of BSD Now features Unix system architecture evolution, a deep dive into FreeBSD's strengths, how developers choose names, OpenSense 21.17 release, uh, support for ChangeDeer in POSIX spawn, a Vagrant FreeBSD box builder, OpenBSD's IATA airport code file, and more in this week's episode of BSD. BSD Now, episode 411, FreeBSD Deep Dive, recorded on the 30th of June 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backups for the truly paranoid. Head over to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find out what this is all about. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome to our freshly baked episode like we did last week. <laughs> We're always baking stuff. Uh, but the stuff that we do is actually reporting what people have wrote. And so we collect it and curate it and present it to you. And this time we have the evolution of the Unix system architecture. So here we have a, a blog post, which is a summary of a paper. Uh, it's a 30-page technical report um, by, oh, this is a hard name, Diomidis Spinellis. Diomidis, right? yeah. Diomidis Spinellis. Ah, okay, let's see, it's better. Um, uh, about the evolution of the Unix system architecture. Uh, they write, Unix has evolved for more than five decades, shaping modern operating systems, key software technologies, and development practices. Studying the evolution of this remarkable system from an architectural perspective can provide insights on how to manage the growth of large, complex, and long-lived software systems. In 2016, my colleague uh, Paris Avergeru and I embarked on this study aiming to combine his software architecture insights with my software analytics skills. Here is a brief summary of the study, which was published this month in IEEE Transactions on Software Engineering. What we did... Starting from the 1970 PDP-7 Unix version at 2,489 lines of kernel code and 9,095 lines of programs, all written in assembly language, we studied main Unix releases leading to the FreeBSD lineage, currently more than 20 million lines of code, shown as orange boxes in the figure below. And the figures are really important for this. So the figure they have here is uh, the Unix family tree that you might have seen many different times. And it's I think it is severely truncated because I'm sure there are a lot more unices than this floating around. Yeah. And what they've done is they've, as they said, they followed um, PDP seven op the PDP seven operating system into Unix um, and some of the branches into BSD as they filter around, and then followed into BSD uh, one into two, three to four point one, four point two, four point three, four point three Tahoe, four point four Reno. BSD slash net 2386BSD and then into the FreeBSD family. And there's some extra mergers of code as they came back. And it just shows some of the spread out. Uh, a simplified diagram of Unix variants, I thought it'd be simplified, and releases related through the code. We studied the lineage of the highlighted elements. Among these releases, we examined core architectural design decisions, the number of features, and code complexity. We did that based on analysis of the following. Source code through the Unix history repository, reference documentation through a custom developed dataset and its timeline visualization, and other related publications. They found uh, a growth in size has been uniform with some notable, out notable outliers, while cyclomatic complexity has been religiously safeguarded. 
And the cyclomatic complexity is the number of nesting conditions you have inside of something. And it can be used as an indication to say that code is really complicated. So if you have tons of indirection to figure out where the actual code runs, it can be harder to read. Um, and they have some plots showing uh, how commands, libraries, and the kernel have varied in cyclomatic complexity uh, over time. And there's a, a peak towards the late 2000s, and then things actually start to get uh, more reasonable, uh, apart from user space, which has been sort of flatter. Um, a large number of Unix-defining design decisions were implemented right from the early beginning, with most of them still playing a major role. This is apparent if one compares the high-level architecture diagrams of the first release Unix version with the current one. Impressively, the basic shape of the 1972 first research edition architecture has a similar structure and shares many elements with the modern FreeBSD version. The common elements share a color. Uh, and so on the 1972 operating system um, diagram uh, figure, uh, tons of this is colored in. And the colored in stuff is stuff that is persisted through. And it's really clear that while there have been some changes, I think a major change is switch, which... Uh, does context switching, so it probably has been updated. Um, lots of things actually uh, can can still trace a lineage all the way through. Uh, and then they follow up with the same diagram, but from the FreeBSD 11 side, showing the pieces that have come through. And you can see the operating system is much bigger here, but there's still the core parts. Um, as is apparent in the timeline diagram below, Unix continues to evolve from an architectural perspective, but the rate of architectural innovation has slowed down over the system's lifetime. And so they have a timeline here with um, major milestones and releases showing when things were introduced. And you can see this is starting to taper off um, after around 2006. Um, architectural technical depth has accrued in the forms of functionality, duplication, and unused facilities. But in terms of cyclomatic complexity, it is a systematically being paid back through what appears to be a self-correcting process. Some unsung architectural forces that shaped Unix are the emphasis on conventions over rigid enforcement. Think of documented file formats or environment variables. The drive for portability. Nowadays, Unix runs on a system ranging from the $15 Raspberry Pi Zero, I thought it was $5, uh, up to supercomputers, a sophisticated ecosystem of other operating systems and development organizations. We documented millions of lines of code coming from third-party subsystems and more than 10 third-party contributors. And the emergence of a federated architecture, often through the adoption of third-party subsystems. See, for example, the IO subsystem in the modern architecture. And for more information on this, they have a 30-page study, which is openly available in the IEEE Explorer library and they, they provide a full reference. I love this blog post about a giant report because it didn't, means I didn't have to read the giant report today. Oh yeah, it seems like they're really into the history and uh, you know uh, analyzing it in a, in a way that you don't normally get while browsing the repository. It, it's really cool to have, um, a, a, not a continuous line, but to have a solid line back uh, I remember I was at an ITF with Lawrence Stewart and we were trying to figure out why something happened in TCP. And we did a SVN blame all the way back through history and it stopped and we didn't have an answer. And so we went and pulled out a TCP IP Illustrated Volume 2 uh, and then looked through there into uh, the 4.3, I think, 4.4 network stack, trying to figure out. And we were like, oh, well, well, we don't have an answer for why this number is three. It's probably okay. Um, it, <laughs> and it's great that. to have that resource which leans 40 years into the past 
to try mm. and see why why things are the way they are. Yeah, and sometimes it's because the machines back then couldn't do other values or couldn't make it faster. But it's kind of like, oh, we take this for granted now and we're not, you know, re-evaluating whether other numbers or other values make sense. Yeah, and I'm, I really enjoy this presentation uh, approach of having something quite informal to talk about a very formal report. If there yeah, was just a 30-page report here, I don't think many people would read it. We certainly yeah. wouldn't be able to cover it with this much detail, but because they've pulled out the highlights, we can see um, what they've done. And if you want to talk about software complexity over time, they have a great resource in how they've done analysis. Mm. Yeah, that's not exploding in your face, but it's still manageable. And uh, yeah, the cyclomatic complexity that they mentioned is still in a, in a good state or in a good value. Cool, very nice. And uh, the next is an article by, you guessed it, Clara Systems, a deep dive into the strengths of FreeBSD, is it this time? So a while back, uh, they talked about the advantages of different open source licensing models. And I think we've covered this also in an episode that we released. And this time, uh, it may sometimes seem difficult to believe that, but FreeBSD has been around for almost 30 years with its initial release in 1993. It has evolved tremendously over the years with the involvement of a great community who has contributed to its continuous development and fine-tuning. This great community that puts its shoulder to the development of FreeBSD consists of three groups, the committers, the contributors, and the users. So if users only run FreeBSD systems, contributors are those uh, who submit patches for consideration. Committers are the ones who assess these patches and decide what goes in and what doesn't or needs a little bit of modification. Or in some simple terms, committers are developers with read and write access to the FreeBSD repositories. So in this article, we will ta take a look at the strengths that make FreeBSD a trustworthy choice of operating system. So first of all, why FreeBSD, they ask. One of the best features of FreeBSD is that it can be used as a general purpose operating system. That means FreeBSD can be used as a server, as an embedded system, or in networking. A large part of popular third-party software available in FreeBSD allows you to easily use the operating system as a web server, a firewall, FTP server, DNS server, mail server, or router, or all-in-one. Given that FreeBSD supports PowerPC, MIPS, RISC-V, and ARM, it can also be used for embedded systems. FreeBSD can be used, as your needs dictate, as a powerful desktop, or as a development machine. It also supports network services, web, mail, file, and additional applications. One of the very well-known advantages of FreeBSD is its reliability as an internet server. Big names such as Netflix or Sony uh, for its PlayStation rely on FreeBSD pr to provide dependable services. Or back in the day, Yahoo uh, was really big in FreeBSD. FreeBSD is incredibly stable and provides good security to boot. It is extremely fast and very responsive. FreeBSD is free and is focused on performance, networking, and storage, easily combining system administration and comprehensive documentation to reach the full potential of any computer. Then there's a section about uh, software management, a simplified way, uh, talking about the software management, you know, package and the port system. So um, the, the ports collection, which contains over 30,000 applications, is the system that FreeBSD provides for building add-on software. With ports, you can build the software from the source code provided by the vendor with a couple of patches on top, according to your needs, selecting which features you want. Or if you don't want to uh, do all the compile cycles, you can use packages because they're usually preferred to ports as they're already compiled and don't make additional time and resources. 
So that is uh, one other advantages. They have also mentioned customizable builds. That what we that's what we covered last uh, in last week's episode about customizing FreeBSD builds. They also mentioned powerful systems built on economical software. There they mentioned nobody likes bloatware, right? So yeah, you can make. Uh, any kind of changes to FreeBSD, rip stuff out that you don't want or don't need. And by default, when you install the system, there's no stuff running that is there because the distribution provider uh, wants it to. Uh, so it's only running the bare minimum stuff. And um, then you as the user or the administrator can add stuff to it without having to disable a lot of stuff first. There's also a word on portability here. So we already mentioned the ARM and RISC-V ports. And so these are also mentioning the tier uh, layers that FreeBSD uses, if you want to call it that. So the FreeBSD project defines tiers to organize the architectures. And these tiers characterize the level of support provided by the project. So there's tier one as the most used that are commonly supported by the security officer, release engineering and toolchain maintenance staff. Then there's tier two that includes development architectures, which are supported as a best effort basis. And tier three includes meh, experimental architectures that have lower levels of support. And of course, as time progresses, some tiers might switch as architectures become less uh, important or more important if it's a, a new one. Then there's a big chapter about file systems because you definitely need to know about ZFS in FreeBSD because it's very cool, as well as the Unix file system, which uh, was around since the very early days and is still around today and is still maintained and features get added. So in conclusion, FreeBSD offers many unique features, highly customizable so that you can customize it as your requirements need. And between the advantages of the software platform and the operating system, the licensing coming with it, you can build strong, resilient, licensing-friendly products and environments. Yeah, this is a good uh, way of you know, showing people, hey, this is in a one-page uh, document or without any other further ado, this lists some of the many benefits that FreeBSD has. It's really, it's really hard to sell uh, a lack of trouble. Like, like simplicity to someone it's really hard to say we, we love this platform because it works like like seamlessly yeah it, and it keeps running <laughs> and it's kind of like yeah this is kind of a given but a lot of work went into that and a lot of people uh put some effort and a lot of resources into it to make it that as it is today and yeah some people just take it for granted which is kind of sad if you don't know how much work went into it speaking of developers have you ever wondered how developers choose the names for the software that they write. So here's an interesting read for you. Uh, this is on arxiv.org from Cornell University. And it's a paper on how developers choose names. So not names for their children or their pets, for their software. And <laughs> the abstract here is the names of variables and functions serve as implicit documentation instrument for program comprehension but choosing good meaningful names is hard yeah it's one of the big problems in computer science uh, we perform a sequence of experiments in which a total of 334 subjects are required to choose names in given programming scenarios the first experiment shows that the probability that two developers would select the same name is low in the 47 instances in our experiments the median probability was only 6.9% at the same time Given that a specific name is chosen, it is usually understood that the majority of developers, uh, by the majority of developers, yeah, 
Analysis of the names given in the experiment suggests a model where naming is a not necessarily cognizant or a serial three-step process. First, selecting the concepts to include in the name. Then second, choosing the words to uh, represent each model. And three, constructing a name using these words. So as a follow-up experiment, using the same experimental setup, then checked whether using this model explicitly can improve the quality of names. The results were that names selected by subjects using the model were judged by two independent judges to be superior to names chosen in the original experiment by the ratio of two to one. Using the model appears to encourage the use of more concepts and longer names. Yeah, so there's the, the camp where it's like, okay, let's make it super verbose, even if you if your variable name goes over the screen and you have to have a, a line break in there. And then there's the group of people, and I see this a lot in, in students, where they're kind of like, yeah, let's, let's keep it as short as possible because I don't want to type that. Do you really much. think it's that? That's that's a great option. I never considered that. <laughs> I can I can think the letter A is yeah. easy to remember. Well, I know what A does. It's the apple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's the usual variable names like ASDF or QWERTY, but it's kind of difficult if you want to make if you especially when you work with a lot of other people on the same code base and you have to kind of you know identify with some numbers or variables and functions. What kind of name do you give it? It's really interesting to see that uh, no matter the name picked, um, most of the time people understood what it was, even if they wouldn't have picked the same one. Yeah, uh, not seeing a lot of uh, refactoring happening just because of function names, because people are already using it, or what other name it might be. Um, It'd be great to see if the work reproduced for developers working who had worked in the same code base. Like, would FreeBSD developers the same names for variables or would they be different because i think oh, a yeah. lot of the time you know there's a problem of people you know there's only one network driver and we just uh we fork it to write the next one uh there's that sort of problem but it would be interesting to see if um this is just because people are not working together and are socialized differently for how names come up mm-hmm. actually really insightful it's great or if someone is more prone to like shorter names or to a certain scheme of of naming while others have like a more collaborative way of choosing those names. I mean, coding is done in uh, in people's homes when they have all come back from conferences or from discussing how it's going to be. And then they just write the code down because everything that has to be discussed has been discussed. Uh, and then it's just, you know, coding. But then it's kind of like, well, during the, the process of programming, do you kind of make changes here and there? And that could include the names. But yeah, if you have like a defined uh, interface where you have to like, okay, that's the name, this is the stuff that we put into the function, and this is the stuff that it's returned, then of course it's more difficult to um, make changes in the naming because you already have a lot of people who rely on that specific naming. Yeah, so uh, check out the whole article. You can download the PDF and uh, see what they had done in that or how they uh, designed the experiments there. All right, then it's time for the news roundup this week. We have OpenSense 21.17 has been released. And the release notes, ah, here they are. Um, They write, hello, hello. Today we move to Falcon, uh, with PH on top uh, at the beginning, uh, version four, along with a new FreeBSD security advisories and fixes for firewall uh, live log, as well as new features such as shell timeout and TLS remote syslog. 
and the patch note has so we pick a couple of those because they're kind of long yeah they have they have 47 patch notes which is what i was doing rather than reading i was i was, <laughs> yeah. I was doing a copy and paste um they've added a, a system inactivity timeout feature for csh and tcsh I don't, I don't know what that means do you know what that means benedict so you would usually um yeah that's what um so if you leave your root shell open for 10 minutes and walk away then it will automatically log out that's what oh, I, cool yeah so i think you can also do this with open ssh so it's kind of a keeping a timer and there's no keyboard input or any other kind of input then it's just silently closing the connection uh, they added a, a GUI restart action in cron jobs. They have made it possible to run open VPN device creation earlier in boot, which I think probably will help quite a lot with connectivity. They've made a, a collection of firewall changes, including um, explicit default for filter rule association in NAT port forwards. They have new, new firmware. Is this a new firmware front end? A new push flag in the firmware front end. Um, they've touched intrusion detection, more open VPN, uh, Unbound. And then there's a big list of changes in plugins as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Including curl 7.77.07. <laughs> yeah, because you can never have enough sevens. <laughs> uh, sorry, the, uh, the the URL is seven. That last seven was the URL. But yeah, yeah, really that's the, the link that. in the, bo- in the at bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, great. It's good to always good to see OpenSense uh, shipping another release. They seem to do these quite a lot. Mm, yeah, they have uh, regular releases and uh, always not just, hey, this is just a security fix. It's mostly also adding functionality here and there to um, yeah keep the firewall updated uh, from the user's perspective and also from the security perspective. Okay, next up, we have a, a blog post on the NetBSD blog, um, which is a, a guest post written by Piyush Sakdeva, which I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, and the, the post is titled uh, Support for CHDIR in POSIX Spawn, uh, with a subtitle, What Really Happens When You Double-Click an Icon on Your Desktop? What does happen? Oh. Uh, processes are the bread and butter of your operating system. The moment you double-click an icon, that particular program gets loaded into your RAM and your operating system starts to run it. At this moment, the pro- program becomes a process. Though you can only see the execution of your process, the operating system is always running a lot of processes in the background to facilitate you. From the moment you hit that power button, everything that happens on the screen is a result of some or the other process. In this post, we're going to talk about one such interface that helps in the creation of your programs. Uh, the fork and exec shenanigans. I think this is a continuation of quite a lot of work in NetBSD on on chdir and fork and exec Mm -hmm. from the moment a computer system comes alive it launches a bunch of processes for the purpose of this blog let's call them the master processes these processes run in perpet in perpetuity perpet perpetuity that one uh (laughs) provided the computer is switched on one such process is init um or maybe system d or launch d depending on your operating system the init master process owns all other processes in the computer either directly or indirectly uh, operating system oh wow okay this is a rosier view of operating systems than i have uh, operating systems are an elegant majestic software that works seamlessly under the hood yeah that's a nice okay. description yeah that's uh <laughs> i have a lot of books here if that only it were so simple <laughs> <laughs> they, they do so much without even breaking a sweat uh, let's consider a scenario where you have decided to take a trip down memory lane and burst open those old photos 
the init master process just can't terminate itself and let you look at your photos? What if unknowingly, what if you unknowingly open a malicious file which corrupts all of your data? So init doesn't just exit, rather it employs fork and exec to start a new process. The fork function is used to create child processes where there's an exact copy of their parent. Whichever process calls fork gets duplicated. The new created process becomes the child of the original running process, and the original running process is called the parent. Just how parents look after their kids, the parent makes the sure that the child process doesn't cause any mischief. So now you have exactly similar processes running in your computer. One might think the newly created child process doesn't really help us. It doesn't actually at this point, but actually it does. Now exec comes into the picture. What exec does, it replaces any process which calls it. So what if we replace your child process, the one we just thought to be useless, with our photos? That's exactly what we're going to do indeed. This will result in replacement of the fork created child process with your photos. Therefore, the master init process is still running and you can enjoy your photos with no threat to your data. Um, POSIX spawn is an alternative to fork and exec routine. It implements fork and exec, uh, but not directly as that would make it slow and we need everything to be lightning fast. Lightning is fast. Uh, what actually happens is that POSIX spawn only implements the functioning of fork and fork and exec routines, but in one single call. However, because fork and exec is a combination of two different calls, there's a lot of room for customization. What software you're running on your computer calls these routines on its own and does the necessary. Meanwhile, a lot is cooking in the background between the call to fork and exec. There's plenty of leeway for tweaking different aspects of execing process, but POSIX spawn doesn't bear this flexibility and therefore has a lot of limitations. It takes does take a lot of parameters to give the caller from flexibility, but not enough. Now the question before us is, if fork and exec is so much more powerful, then why have or use POSIX spawn routine? The answer is that fork and exec are Unix system routines. They're not present in operating systems that are not a derivative of Unix. Windows is an example. There's another issue with fork, uh, but not exec, which in reality is one of the biggest reasons for the growth of POSIX spawn. The last issue is that creating a child process in a multi-threaded program is a whole other ballgame together. Um, so they are they are giving this as an introduction to uh, a project they're going to work on. I don't know if it's a GSOC project. Yeah, they um, talk about it at the bottom. Do you mention GSOC 2021? And so they say, about my project, hi, I am Pishu Sakdeva, and I'm going to start a project which will focus on relaxing one limitation of POSIX spawn, changing the current directory of the child process. Before that said call to exec is made, this is not going to restrict it to the parent's current working directory, just passing when new directory is one of the parameters will do the trick. Resolving all the impediments would definitely be marvelous. Alas, that is not possible. Every attempt to resolve even a single hindrance can create plenty of new challenges. As, all, as already mentioned, POSIX spawn is a POSIX standard. Hence, the effect of my project will probably be reflected in the next POSIX release. I came across this project through Google Summer of Code 2021. It was being offered by the next BSCD Foundation. However, as slots for GSOC were numbered, my project didn't make selection. Nevertheless, the core team at the NetBSD Foundation offered me to work on the project and even extended a handsome stipend. I will forever be grateful to the NetBSD Foundation for this. Uh, that's 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 excellent news. Um, there is a comment underneath that says there is work in process for in progress for this in the next POSIX release. So it looks like it's going to be work that's going to come through. Uh, it was really interesting. It's great uh -huh. to see um, new work and, and a student being taken up for this. Yeah, and it's kind of work that someone hasn't touched before or kind of like shied away and 
let's do it this as a Google Summer of Code project. Um, yeah, there's a good way of recruiting new people into the projects because they usually stick around to finish their work or got interested in other parts. Very nice. Uh, then we got uh, notified by the German company Punkt.de about their free BSD Vagrant Box Builder. So this is a link to their GitHub repo. Uh, Punkt.de is a German uh, web hoster. I think they're also doing other stuff. Uh, and their GitHub repo not only has this project, but other cool things. Uh, but in this particular instance, we uh, feature their Vagrant Box. So this is a project that you and it allows you to uh, generate FreeBSD-based vagrant boxes with ZFS and UFS. And they have instructions how to do that. So for the impatient, you just clone their repo, then uh, vag run vagrant up, vagrant halt, run package, then cd to the test directory, and then run test. And of course, you can tweak a lot. So you can uh, tweak to make the vagrant file, of course, and make changes to how many cores to use for the building and what other kind of sizes you want to have for the hard disks or swap. And how does it work? Uh, it's using Vagrant, Vagrant Up and Vagrant Provision for subsequently running the deployment, the creation of the second and third uh, hard disk via VBox Manage. For the checkouts of the updates of the FreeBSD source tree, they compile userland and kernel if necessary, create a ZFS install and add config files users on the second hard disk, or in uh, UFS cases, the same on the third hard disk and install some packages on both disks. Uh, there's also some useful info at the bottom. On subsequent Vagrant provision runs, the compile stage is skipped uh, if there are no changes So user source to user source updating. So they kind of intelligently detect when uh, changes happened or not. And when making changes, shut down via Vagrant halt before each new Vagrant provision so that you always have a clean state to start from. Cool, and I think they have more brewing in uh, coming weeks and months uh, so we will probably cover more from them so definitely check out uh, .de. they have corporate websites web portals and online shops or internet solutions i'm just reading from the <laughs> github description here um and i think a couple of uh, their people have also been to um bsd conferences and gave talks i definitely know patrick m hausen and so uh uh, thanks for sending us that link so that we could feature it here. Okay, next up, we have a, an amazing find inside the, the OpenBSD source tree. We have a, a tweet from uh, Jan Pietmens, um, and he says, Today I learned OpenBSD has a three as a file with three-letter IATA airport codes and a manual page for them, of course. <laughs> and the, the manual page is a, is a, is a sheer work of art. Uh, so is airport seven, uh, which section of the man pages is that, Benedict? Uh, is that the game section? I have no idea. Wait, I don't have them. <laughs> I don't know them by, by uh, just <laughs> recalling them from my memory. But um, it's, yeah, it's interesting where this ended up. And why is that actually documented? And so, and so they, have a, they have airport, list of IATA airport codes, the description. The airport file is a list of airports that have an IATA airport code. The oh. list is sorted alphabetically by airport code. The list is not a complete list of all IATA codes. New airports can only be added by OpenBSD developers who have visited an airport and thereby have verified its existence. Oh. Slash user slash share slash misc slash airport. See also 
airline and airport code search. Caveats. There are also railway stations with IATA codes. These may not be listed except if somebody landed there by plane and survived to update the file. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yeah, this is from the time when we still could travel more than we can nowadays. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's useful to know what MAD stands for or what else comes to mind. Uh, I know why, what ADZ why is. <laughs> yeah. uh, YUL. YUL. YUL, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you target if you go to BSD CAN. <laughs> Tune in next week for Tom and Benedict to reminisce about airport codes. Yeah, especially the the, the Fra one, which is Fra, one, of oh. which, one of which just sent an airport, or not an airport, an airplane right over my house. Oh, are you sure it's not my helicopter? Because I'm getting a helicopter right now. Oh, you're also close <laughs> to an airport. I'm on a I'm on a flight path. Oh, okay, yeah that that lets you know that. Uh, Airplanes are still flying, yeah. It, it, it's always reassuring to know that people are still being flown out to oil and gas platforms. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, because Aberdeen. Yeah, yeah, of course. How could I forget? That's, yeah, then it's more helicopter traffic. So, yeah, if you ever wanted to know what the IATA airport code is, so this is usually a, a nice assignment for students when they start uh, the web development. So, like, uh, give me a, an airport code and I retrieve the, you know, the usual uh, longer description. This is a nice programming exercise, but I didn't know that the OpenVST people were collecting that um, meticulously. <laughs> okay, um, this week doesn't have any Beastie bits for you or from you from us to you because we didn't get any. So if you have something small enough for this section, then send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we will have um, something in there. Could be announcements for like little conference happening with BSD content or any interesting uh, Unix projects in this area or small uh, like work in progress articles or small in progress works that are BSD related. So this is all uh, going into the BSD bit section. Usually uh, we would cover the feedback and questions sections next and we will too. But before we do that, we cover our sponsor for this week, which is Tarsnap. Tarsnap is your one-stop solution for the online backups for the truly paranoids. And you are like, yeah, but I'm already making backups. Come on, how, how many backups do I need? Well, it's always good to have a second backup for the most important files. And Tarsnap is special in many ways because it allows you to do a lot of the typical backup stuff that the, the platform provider, if you want to call it that, does for you. Uh, you do it locally first, because if you think about it, the things you back up could save your life one day, hopefully, your online life at least. But also, if it falls into the wrong hands, you would be like, oh, that shouldn't have happened. And I can't trust this backup provider anymore. With Tarsnap, you have all the encryption in your hands because you're holding the keys to the castle, literally, because if the key never leaves your computer, which it never does, uh, if you use Tarsnap properly then your backups always leave your computer encrypted and no one else can make heads and tails of it if they don't know the encryption key. Tarsnap also gives you automatic segmentation and deduplication of the files that you're backing up. So that decreases the amount of backups you have to do and the bandwidth that is used. It uh, can calculate unique blocks in there. So it uh, has an algorithm that does that and then compresses it also to make it even smaller than the original data. It depends on the data that you have. And then once all that is done, the personal key encrypts it, and then the encryption leaves your computer. 
And as long as you keep that personal key around and keep it safe and secure, then you can always retrieve your backup files. No one else can, even if they download it from the AWS servers for whatever lucky accident it might be, they still need the key to decrypt it. Otherwise, they just get, get gibberish. Tarsnap also allows you to um, back up a lot of data without paying too much. Uh, at the beginning of the month, I charged my account with $10 and it, this will probably last me for the rest of the year, even if not longer. And so um, the data that I have to back up is typically small enough, but I want to keep it secure. And it's usually the data that I don't want people you know, poking into. So that's what I use Tarsnap for. There's also a client available for if you want to have a desktop backup running in the background for maybe every hour or every five minutes, whatever it might be. And there are clients available for most Unix systems, the BSDs, the Linuxes, the Mac OSs, uh, the subsystem for Windows, and you can read uh, comprehensive documentation. There's also a book about Tarsnap, Tarsnap Mastery by Michael W. Lucas, uh, that explains everything that you need to know about Tarsnap and how to use it. If you know Tar, then Tarsnap is very similar, and so you don't have to learn a lot of new technical commands that you are required to use it. Okay, now it's time for the feedback and questions. And as we mentioned, we keep getting back up, but if you oh, keep getting back up, <laughs> that too, but we keep also keep getting famously good amounts of feedback now. So I don't have to ask you to send us more, but in case you have anything to contribute to this episode or to future ones, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And we, we always want more questions. Just because we have them right now, it doesn't mean we'll have them in the future. And of, of course, we'll have your questions, so it'll be fine. But you have to send yeah. it in. The pile will shrink over time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. The first one is uh, Lubo with an IPFW question. And that goes, hi, Alan, Benedict, Tom, and JT. See, they cover everyone now. Nice. Uh, nice show, as always. And it's good to see Tom joining the team. Yeah. He's a good addition to the team. Um, personal opinion here. <laughs> um <laughs> So, yeah, let's continue. Uh, I would like to ask a networking question about IPFW or PF. How do you manage traffic shaping and how scalable is it? Up to what traffic volumes and up to what amount of sessions, supposing pure routing, not, not involved, can one scale? Thanks for the answer in advance and keep on running the show. Uh, and, and always what seems like a simple question is always a hard question. Um, for IPFW, you can do traffic shaping using dummy net. And I, I've used quite a lot of Dummy Net and I quite like it. And for PF on FreeBSD and OpenBSD, you can use something called AltQ for traffic shaping. Uh, and that is the extent of what I know about uh, traffic shaping with PF. Traffic shaping is reasonably scalable, but it, it's going to have an impact based on what you're doing. I know IPFW had a, a bug for a while where you actually couldn't give an, like more than two gigabit as a number because there was a 32-bit limit to the speed. And I think that was fixed. I would imagine you'd be okay shaping up to maybe 10 gig, depending a lot on processor cores and the amount of available memory you have. I have never had issues. I've never encountered having to move lots of traffic like a router would, like with an internet mix. Um, but I have had issues where uh, single flows have had very large BDPs. So they've had uh, high delays and high bandwidths. And I've hit a limit where... My, the processor in the router I was using on APU2 just 
couldn't keep up or it couldn't get enough memory there was a there was a bottleneck here and we we petered out before we could hit a uh, 200 megabit um i i wouldn't say that's indicative i don't think you're normally trying to most people aren't me and they're not trying to emulate satellites uh but i i started hit that sort of thing when i was emulating satellites i think up to 10 gig you should be okay for any of these and it'll, it'll be great fun the bsd router project has um descriptions of doing test harnesses uh, and for different traffic distributions and they also have plots for results for ipfw and pf on reasonably modern or mo- maybe modern when they were written xeons um so you can see what the high end looks like and you could probably scale your workload based on the numbers they've reported i think they might have numbers where dummy net is turned on but not doing anything which is quite different from actually traffic shaping um but there's quite a lot of resources available to experiment with. Um, but if your workload's less than, than sort of 10 gig a second, then you should actually be okay. Um, and you could probably run a test bench and see if you can actually manage this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for the people who don't know what traffic shaping can give you, so in case your machine that's running the firewall is very heavily bombarded by, you know, slash daughters or whatever it is, and if you don't have traffic shaping, then you cannot even SSH into the machine because it's so many connections it has to handle and the ssh connection will be uh difficult to get through but if you have traffic shaping on your uh, ssh connection or on ssh type connections then you can say always save like i don't know 10 percent or 5 percent bandwidth for that connection so that i don't have a, a way to get into the machine so that the other machines as much as they pummel that machine they only get 95 percent of the total bandwidth and you have your five percent let's say um, way of connecting with SSH, but you can use it, of course, for other ways. Like this, uh, this many traffic should go to the website. This other traffic should go to the jail or whatever kind of service or network port it should be. That's also uh, possible to define in the rule set. Cool. Next up, we have a, a question from Michael, and it's called a, a NetBSD story. And Michael writes, "Hey, BSD now crew, good to see you guys are growing. Not a question, just another submission." I was looking at my regular news feeds and I've started seeing, and I have been seeing a lot of NetBSD stories. Not sure what's inspiring it, but it's always great to see as I've started using it some since I started listening to the show from like 2013. This was the one I saw earlier today. Would be good to see what you all have to say about it. Thanks, Michael. And that's a really unsatisfying question, isn't it? But below we have a producer's note. I've removed the link and we're saving it for a future episode. Ooh. So all you listeners will just have to keep tuning in so we don't spoil it for you. JT. <laughs> That's JT. Excellent. So he's keeping people engaged to listen to future episodes. <laughs> and you can see the difference, right? So the TJ will read you, read you the articles and tell you what's going on. JT will just tease you with them. Yeah. <laughs> That's the distinction you have to make. Yeah. <laughs> But also JT is responsible for coming up with the actual show. and Putting the show together, yeah. Yeah. He does the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. And then uh, we have Sven uh, about the Dark Garage article on OpenBSD that we featured a while ago. And this goes, Hi, Benedict, Alan, and Tom. Thanks for the great show and your kind words about my OpenBSD Dark Garage article in undeadly.org. I'm intrigued by the possibility of presenting it at the conference, but unfortunately I won't be able to 
two at this time around. I'm submitting another article to Undead Lee, although, uh, although with a canine OpenBSD theme. Oh, nice. On a FreeBSD note, I think almost uh, have multiple access points working. I can see two networks that I create, but still can only log into one of them. I see the relevant section now in manrc.conf, but I'm still doing something boneheaded, no doubt. I'm running FreeBSD 12.2 release, uh, patch level six, on a PC Engine's APU2 with ATH0 on an AR9280 Wi-Fi. Uh, I create two VLAN interfaces and two host APD v, uh, WLAN underscore XCon files. There are two host APD processes running, one for each file, but host APD underscore CLI all STA only shows one interface. I noticed that man host APD mentions host APD CLI reconfigure, but that doesn't seem to be one of the options in host APD CLI. Oh, is that a documentation thing? Uh, okay, I will keep chipping away at it and hope to hear if someone finds a solution as well. Thanks again for the great podcast. I, I, I don't, I don't know if we can, if we can help. I wasn't quite sure what um, Sven means by they can see both access points. I think the best thing would do if, if uh, a listener had an example uh, host APD config file with multiple access points they could share, and then we could we could cover it in the show as a. An example because i think that might be the best thing to look at debugging mm. any of these things i would just try and simplify all the stages um i'd probably try and get this working just as as open networks with two different ssids and connect from one device that is going to work very well with wi-fi something you're very sure about um yeah so you can roam between the two it's not clear where they're trying to connect from because it might be that they can't see the the ssid on the router itself and i'm not sure if they would yeah yeah, that's that's good. If someone has a how-to, or uh, it could be also indicative that we need to update the FreeBSD um, handbook one more time for the Wi-Fi section. Um, <laughs> it seems like it's uh, coming. Uh, it's using examples from there. Uh, but if anyone else has a how-to or blog post about this, then we'd be happy to follow up with this one and mention it in a future episode. Cool, but yeah, nice that you uh, found our uh, mentioning of your Doc Garage article needful. I mean, this is nice. It's a nice project, and why not mention it here? <laughs> Very good. Um, we don't have anything else on our list of things to mention, so we'll leave you for this week into your other uh, uh, doings, maybe on BSD, maybe on other things, and uh, see you next week. See you next week.